is Russ Curry. Welcome to The Road Scholar, spelled R-O-A-D, meaning every one of us has something to contribute through our life's experience or through the road less traveled or the path that we walk on. This podcast will be about the life, the universe, and everything, as mentioned by Douglas Adam in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So a few years ago, um, I was married, and I thought happily. Um, my wife was a wonderful woman, and as again, I, I thought we were happily in love. Um, and then we had an argument uh, before our anniversary, and some things began to change between us. Um, she started to, you know, buy new underwear, uh, put in hair extensions, change her hair color. Uh, she started going to the gym more. Uh, she'd spend time in the garage when she when she got home from work on the phone. So gradually, I began to suspect um, that she may be having an affair. I really had no proof other than a feeling. So there's two parts of me. There's Russ, who's the mild-mannered, loving husband who tries to be attentive. Sometimes I failed, sometimes I succeeded. And then there's Curry, the person who spent the entirety of his adult life in uniform. Uh, Russ, again, a good person, tries to be kind. And then there's Curry, a skeptic in every sense of the word. He distrusts, he's prone to jealousy, prone to anger, prone to outbursts, and I tried to keep Russ at bay. The story of the two wolves, uh, when the Indian boy asks his grandfather uh, about the two wolves, and the grandfather tells him that the first wolf is kind and gentle and loving and appreciates nature and tries to always do the right thing. And the second wolf is prone to violence and vengefulness and anger and wrath. And the boy asks his grandfather, which wolf survives? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Well, to the soldier, sometimes we have to feed both. And the key to that is knowing which one to feed and when. So ultimately, uh, I was able to verify that my wife was in fact having an affair. And my daughter was coming to visit uh, for the summer. So I made kind of a promise to myself that no matter what, my daughter was gonna have a good summer because her mother, and my ex-wife, Donna, was also going through sort of an, uh, a crisis in her relationship, and she was ending it to move back home for the sake of Eliana. So I wanted to make sure that Eliana had a great summer. So she did. And in the course of that summer, I suffered continuously. Um, she would go and visit her boyfriend. Um, she would talk to him or text him next to me. Uh, her indifference to me uh, was cruel and it hurt me deeply. Uh, but I made sure that my daughter had a great summer. And at the end of the summer, um, I put my wife on a plane uh, so she could go temporary duty and to see her boyfriend. And then I came home and I picked up my daughter and then I drove her back to the airport several hours later, but I drove her back to the airport and I dropped her off. And my mother had come to visit and she had, you know, she's a mother, she knows that something's up. And my stepdaughter were there, so I told my mother what had been going on, and they both started to cry. Uh, I had been holding in my emotions for so long, suppressing them for so long, that I just kind of became completely numb. You know, there's the saying that pain is inevitable, suffering is not. Um, my ex-wife gave me the, the great gift of suffering. Um, I, at that point, had been living on my knees for about 10 months of having knowledge of my wife's infidelity. And it was painful, uh, and I suffered in silence. 
I didn't reach out to friends or family. I just suffered. And her indifference, her cruelty to me, uh, it, it, it almost broke me. Um, and I'll reference this saying several times throughout my podcast, podcasts, excuse me, that the world breaks all of us from time to time. And the strongest, and the strongest of us emerge stronger in those broken places. Uh, the Japanese pottery, that when it, when it cracks or breaks, they, they weld it or they, they put it back together with gold. It's beautiful. Um, you know, we, we all have scars and life scuffs us up from time to time. Time does heal all wounds, but we have scars for a reason. They remind us of what had happened to us in our past. So I moved out, uh, moved in with a very good friend of mine, a man that I went to war with. Um, his family is like like my family. Uh, I love them all dearly because I needed to be around people. Uh, I had been looking for a place to move and I found a place in Sacramento, uh, in West Sac, but I would be all alone. I would be continuously alone at night. And I knew that that wasn't good. Uh, so I moved into to Jeff's house, uh, to his casita, his guest house, and the family, they treated me well. They knew that I was hurting and they treated me very well. Uh, and I stayed there for uh, almost a year, almost. Um, I had started a new job uh, right about the time that I found out um, about Jennifer's affair. Uh, it was a rather long commute, so I had all of this time driving in the car, all of this time to myself to think. So I knew that moving into a place where I would continuously be alone wasn't the right thing to do. Now, I've never had a suicidal thought in my life, um, but I got to a point where I didn't care if I lived or died. And that was not a good place to be. It's not a good place for anyone to be. You know, we all have friends or we, we should all have people that we can talk to and reach out to. Uh, so with Jeff, um, you know, how men are, we don't ever bear our souls, you know, manly men, we don't bear our souls. But Jeff knew and his wife, Christy, knew that I was hurting. Uh, so they embraced me. Jeff embraced me as a brother. Chris embraced me. Christy embraced me as a brother. And the children call me Uncle Russ. So I had family. Um, but eventually the, the drive got to be too much. So, um, I started looking for a place. Uh, oh, I should mention, um, my friends, Kurt and Kim, uh, I used to house sit for them. Uh, they have a dog named Frodo and they knew that I was making this long commute. Uh, so at one point I started doing Brazilian jujitsu and it was, it was very good. Um, it got me up in the morning wanted to change my brain chemistry so I could start functioning early in the morning. Uh, and for six weeks, I did this intensive Monday, Wednesday, Friday jiu-jitsu program um, at Spark Jiu-Jitsu in Hayward. Great, great dojo, uh, great coaches, great instructors, good people. Again, I got outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I, got, I surrounded myself with people as much as I could. So flash forward. Um, well, on the job, um, you know, I knew that I needed to, to get out there. So I met uh, this incredible young woman. Um, you know, she was just, just awesome. Um, she was so much like me that it, it scared me. I mean, I think that we clicked almost immediately. Uh, there's this picture of my daughter where she has uh, dollar store nail polish on. So she went to sleep and the nail polish on the middle fingers smudged. And I woke up to her flipping me the bird with two hands. So I took a picture of that and it's my favorite picture of her because it's so innocent. But of course people can infer so much from it that I'm a horrible parent. I'm teaching my daughter how to do this, uh, but it's a great picture. Uh, so I showed this woman the picture and 
you know, she laughed. And it was an incredible laugh. Uh, it was just a beautiful, incredible laugh that I would not have expected. It was one of those laughs where she covered her mouth because she laughed so hard. And previously in interactions with her, uh, she comes across as very cold, uh, almost indifferent to you. Um, but I, I saw in her eyes something that said, you know, most people see her and, and they see immediately, leave me alone. And they back off because she has the energy of a coiled snake. So people back off and, and they try to leave her alone. But what I also saw was, I'm hurting. Please talk to me. Please help me. Please hold me. That's what I saw in her eyes. So that's kind of uh, how we started uh, our relationship. Uh, so I managed to get some courage up and I uh, asked her on what I called the zero date. And the zero date was, uh, can we stand each other enough to have a real date? So the zero date consisted of lunch. Lunch was great. I held out her chair for her. I opened the door for her and these things surprised her greatly. I could see it in her body language. She was not used to this uh, kind of thing from men. Uh, so I made a mental note of that, to always be a gentleman and to always treat her like a lady. Because to me, I mean, she was the most beautiful thing that I had seen in a long time. And I was just happy to be in her presence. So the zero date went well and we agreed to go out on September 3rd, 2016. Uh, so I picked her up with an Uber and took her to her favorite restaurant in the town that she lives in. And the, the restaurant was great. The, the wait staff was great. The, the head chef came out and spoke to us. Uh, everyone, everything was just great. Um, and then we went into the city and <laughs> we found a vampire bar. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and uh, at some point in the evening, I, I had to go to the bathroom. So I went downstairs and walked Basically, at the back of the rest or the back of the bar, I walked downstairs and then I had to walk to the front of the bar to the bathrooms. I go into the bathroom and I see this guy dressed in all black and he's got white hair and he's pale skinned. And I say, Hey, what's up, man? And he just goes, Hey. And I was like, Okay. So, to quote George Clooney, don't anyone fucking tell me vampires don't exist because what the fuck we got here is fucking vampires from dusk till dawn. And over the course of my podcast, I'm, I'm going to use movie quotes because I, uh, it's a bucket list item to be able to use a movie quote and, and apply it to real life. So anyway, uh, she has to go to the bathroom. So she goes downstairs and she's gone for about eight minutes or so. She comes back upstairs and she said, we have to leave right now. Again, referencing from dusk till dawn. Okay, there's vampires here. We got to go. So we get about halfway out of uh, halfway through the bar and she looks at me and she just collapsed. She lost consciousness. Uh, I grabbed her and was able to not to hold her so she didn't fall hard on the ground. Um, she comes to about a, 45 seconds to a minute later. Uh, I just keep holding her hand, telling her, I got you. I got you. So we get an Uber. We leave there. Uh, the guy was a real prick, miserable bastard. Um, and she says she's going to be sick. So she gets out of the car. He pulls over. She gets out of the car. And I'm half in, half out. So this, this jerk doesn't uh, take off and leave us stranded on the side of the damn highway. Uh, she vomits. Uh, she gets back in and this guy's driving erratically. So she vomited again in the bottom of his car and it cost me $241, but it was money well spent. Um, so we get back to her place and I say, Hey, we need to go to the hospital. So we, eventually she agrees to go to the hospital and eventually she agrees to let me drive her car to get her to the hospital. Um, so we go to the hospital and she's riding around, uh, I'm in a wheelchair and she's riding around on my lap. I'm just trying to use levity to keep her calm. Uh, the doctor comes out, she goes back, and eventually the doctor calls me back. Uh, and I say, look, you know, 
we want to make sure that she's okay. We should obviously you got to run some tests, and if she's been drugged or something, then we need to call the police, uh, check the video at the rest at the bar, and then of course uh, clear me. And she's like, well, I wasn't thinking that. I'm like, well, you should be thinking that because unfortunately, that's the time that we live in. Those are the times we live in. So everything turns out okay. Um, we are leaving, and she asked me, she's like, you still have a hotel room? I said, yes, I do. Um, you still have champagne on ice? I said, yes, I do. Do you still have raspberries and blueberries? I said, yes, I do. So we go back, and the gentleman never kisses and tells, um, but it was a rather enjoyable evening. Um, and then from there, basically, we decided to, to see where it would go. Uh, she did tell me uh, on, or early that evening when we got to the, the bar in, in the city, she did tell me that she was bisexual, and this comes into play um, very quickly, uh, soon. And this is sort of, uh, the reason why I decided to create this podcast. Uh, it's sort of therapy for me. And I hope that it can be helpful to those of you who eventually find this podcast. Um, so we had a, an intense relationship. Um, the star that Brian, that, that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Um, you know, I, so we broke up once close to our one year anniversary. She broke up with me. Um, I originally didn't want to put a label on things. I just wanted to see where they would go. But I, I fell in love with this woman so quickly and so hard because she's such an incredible, incredible human being. And just being in orbit around her centered me and calmed me down. Hearing her voice calm me down. When she looked at me, it would calm me down. Um, and so we agreed that cold turkey probably wasn't the best way to end things. So we slowly started seeing each other again. And then the intensity continued to build. And there was, there was ups and downs in any relationship. But in the entire time that we were together, we were only mad at each other once. Uh, and it was honestly a miscommunication that probably could have been really easily resolved had we just talked. Uh, so we wasted an evening being angry at each other. Um, and I, I got to know her kids uh, very well. I uh, came to love them. Uh, immensely valued my time with them because being with her youngest helped me kind of maintain a connection with, with my daughter because they're the same age and my daughter wasn't always around. So it was kind of a surrogate. I, I got to be the dad um, and play board games and go to movies and, and go get pizza and hamburgers. Uh, you know, cherished, cherished memories. Um, I'm 46, so in any age that we are, especially when you're approaching middle age and you're single, the potential dating pool that you should uh, be looking at, more than likely, you know, they, they've got kids. And I, I had to, to get used to that quickly. Um, I don't date outside of my food chain. And by that, I mean, I don't date women that are half my age. I've seen men do it. I've seen women do it. And it's embarrassing. I'm not judging. I'm just, I wouldn't do it because I would be embarrassed. What would I talk about? Um, so... The relationship is progressing, um, and I had to go on a, a work trip, and I'm on this trip, and all of a sudden, the communication between us is a random text every few hours. So immediately in my mind, um, the red flares, the warning signs are popping up. Um, I'm asking her what's wrong, and she's saying nothing. I'm just in my head dealing with my BS, and I know that something is wrong because, I mean, our connection was as close as I have ever known it between a man and a woman in my life. We were connected. I mean, I could feel her 
I could like reach out with my mind and feel her, not like the force or anything, but I, I could just feel her. And what I felt was her pulling away. She didn't ghost me per se, but she wasn't communicating. And that was one thing that we would always promise that we would do. So I began talking to some friends because I felt that the end was coming. So I was trying to prepare. And unlike my divorce from my previous wife, uh, I wasn't going to suffer in silence. I was going to reach out to my friends and I was going to seek help. So I did. And when I finally got back, you know, I sent her a text. I actually, I sent her flowers. Um, I don't recall the event that I sent her flowers. Oh, she was sick. And all she said was, thanks for the flowers. My heart sunk. I mean, it, the bottom just fell out. So we agreed to have dinner. And for the first hour of dinner, it was polite conversation, uh, chit-chat. And then she, well, let me go back. So my friends are like, well, what do you think's going on? Um, and this is kind of the point of the podcast, what I, a long roundabout way of getting to uh, my point on my, my process for healing and how, and how I did it, and how I started to do it. So I, I reached out to my friends and they were like, what do you think's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I cannot make suppositions about what I don't know. I can, and that's what leads to greater suffering. Your mind goes to the worst case scenario. And I know that there are schools of thought where they say that you should go to the worst case scenario. Um, but I didn't want to subscribe to that at this point because I really didn't know. So logically, assuming something or making uh, suppositions about what was going on in her head really had no place. And it would only add to suffering. So I tried to remain indifferent, uh, chosen indifference uh, to it. So um, eventually she quiets down and I realized that, okay, we're now getting to what happened. And she said, do you remember how I said that I was bisexual? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I need to be with a woman now. And it was like a sledgehammer or a double barreled shotgun. I took both barrels to the chest. So for the next hour, she's trying to explain how she feels um, and, and what's going on. And I am just utterly devastated. I mean, I think I may have said four or five things in the course of the hour as she's bearing her soul. Um, so not to belabor it, uh, it, was, it was emotionally and spiritually and mentally devastating. Um, the greater parts of myself had just realized that we were dead. We no longer existed as a couple. And we walked out of the restaurant, um, kind of, we, we, very quiet. I walked her, we parked in the same place. I walked her back to her uh, to, the, to the bank so she could get some money out or, yeah, get money out of the ATM. Um, I gave her a hug. We hugged each other for a long time. And I kissed her on the forehead and I walked away and got in my car and drove off. Uh, I don't remember the drive back um, at all. I was numb. So at dinner, she said that the ball was in my court. Um, if we remain friends or not. And I kind of laughed and said, this is the first time in our relationship that the ball has ever been in my court. So I'm driving home and I get a text from her saying, please forgive me. And I sat on it for about an hour. And I said, I will forgive you in time, but that time is not now. Um, so I do what I do when I'm in my head. I wrote, I wrote her a letter, basically a goodbye letter, a few days later. And in that letter I said, I forgive you. I'm not mad at you. I could not be any more mad at you for this than I could be at my daughter for hurting my feelings. I am proud of you because 
You've admitted to yourself and to me that this is who you need to be right now. Um, and I am devastated beyond words and the profound emptiness and sadness that I feel at this loss. There are no words to describe it. There, I mean, if you tried to pick the most gut-wrenching emotion of loss and sorrow you could, that would be it. And I have no word for it. Uh, it is just a profound sense of loss and emptiness like no other that I've ever felt. And because I knew that my previous wife was having an affair, I was able to build up an, a tolerance to her indifference. But this was an absolute ambush I had in my wildest dreams to not see this coming. And I remember thinking to myself in, in the letter I told her, I always thought we'd have more time. Oh, let's go back. So at the dinner, um, one of the things that I did say to her was this, I wanted to marry you. And that's when she started crying. And I absolutely meant it. I could see myself marrying this woman and being with her. Obviously, the, her running to be with a woman notwithstanding. Um, so I give her the letter and she reads it. A few days later, she finally you know, gets the courage to read it. Um, and I said, cold turkey's not going to work. I know that us as a couple is over. I will rationalize. I, I will work my way through that eventually. But I need to be around you. And the only person, ironically, that can help me heal is the person that caused the pain. And she agreed. Um, so we had uh, dinner one night. Um, two weeks later, we had dinner. Um, and it was tough. Um, you know, I picked her up at home. I saw the kids, uh, hugged. Um, and, you know, we told her youngest, uh, look, we're just friends. And we had dinner, and it was good. Uh, things happened. Uh, words were said. Things happened. Um, there was a lot of crying involved, a lot of hugging. Um, and that was, uh, that was two weeks ago now. Um, and since then, I have really done a deep dive into Stoic philosophy uh, and meditation and using headspace and re reaching out to friends and, and having them talk to me and talking to my friends. Um, I'm going to go see a therapist because I, there's just this profound sense of loss. I mean, it literally feels as if she died. And in a great sense to me, the she that I loved dearly is gone. Uh, you know, she told me that she's still attracted to me. She still loves me. She still wants to be friends. And, you know, these things are important. And I understand that, that they are important because I do want her in my life and she wants me in her life. Um, but what I have to wrap my brain around is it, it's just going to be as friends. And that is really, really difficult for me to, because just a, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, we were a couple, we were happy. And, you know, I never even got a sense that she was having these feelings. Um, I wasn't being arrogant. I, I didn't think that, that I was so good uh, all around that, um, that I had turned her straight. I mean, I, I knew who she was and I loved her for that. I accepted it. And I am proud of her that she admitted this to herself. Um, and I want to be her friend, but I just am emotionally hurt. So that's why I turned to stoicism, um, to look for something, uh, to help me with these feelings. So I picked up meditations by Marcus Aurelius, who I know that he is not the first stoic, but he is definitely one of the most famous and reading his, his meditations that he wrote for himself 2000 years ago, it was sometimes like we were having a conversation. Like I was sitting before the emperor of Rome and he was talking to me, helping me with this stuff, helping me with how I was feeling and helping me to separate those things that I can't control and those things that I can, you know, the, the, the dichotomy of control.
Um, so, you know, mental versus external. Um, so what I realized while I was writing the letter is that I absolutely had to forgive her because it was absolutely the right thing to do. And Marcus Aurelius said, do what is right because it is right. And, and I told her, um, if I could take your pain, I would. And that, you know, caused more tears. And I meant it. If I could take away her pain so she could move forward with her new relationship with this woman, I, I would. I absolutely would because it's the right thing to do. And it was the right thing to say. And I still believe that it was the right thing to do. That doesn't make it any easier. And for damn sure, it is not easier. Uh, it is... It's very, very difficult. And sitting here talking about it now, I'm kind of getting a lump in my throat. Um, So this podcast, in its early form, and I haven't decided exactly what direction that I want to go in, but I know that it's going to involve stoicism and how we, as humans, um, deal with adversity in our lives. And, you know, those of us who do emerge stronger in the broken places have an obligation to help our fellow man. Uh, I'm a military man, and I have been my entire adult life. I have been to war. And I've seen horrible atrocities in war. But I, I, I will be honest. I would rather deal with that than what I'm going through right now with this. Um, so if my, if my podcast helps you in, in any way, then I am eternally grateful. Um, I'll be setting up a, uh, an email address and a website for this podcast uh, just to see where it goes. It's kind of part of my personal growth and my healing plan uh, is to do this podcast. Um, yeah, sorry, I just got lost in thought. Um, so yeah, there'll be, there'll be more podcasts to follow. I'm going to try to do one a week and keep it at about 30 minutes. Um, and if the podcast grows and I start getting feedback and, and hearing from people, then um, it will evolve because it has to. Uh, just like me, I'm evolving now because I have to. I am not the same man that I was because she is not my life. I am different. Uh, I tell people now you know, that I forgave her and... They are just amazed at the transition of who I am now to who I was 10, 20 years ago. Um, You know, I have a daughter and I know that she looks at me and she watches me. So the type of man that she's going to look for, you know, psychologically speaking, is I'm model, she's modeling him after me. So I must be a good man and I must seek to do what is right and I must be kind and I must forgive slights and injustices and trespasses against me because it's just the right thing to do. There's too much ugliness in the world, and we have too much in common to let petty differences keep us segregated. So this is Russ Curry, podcast number one on The Road Scholar. I hope that this has helped, and as the professor from New York University says, I'll talk to you soon, fate willing. Russ out.